Minnesotans. Welcome to Soda. I'm Jason McKenzie. And I'm Sarah Kensler. So we know that we have been giving you a few different uh, uh, breakdowns of how we're going to be doing the show, and we're doing that again. Fun fact. But it's because we want to be responsive to the world right now and, uh, you know, serve our audience in the best way that we can at the present time. The best way that we can do that is by acknowledging where we fall short in our experience within the art world and with uh, communities that are not our own, and moving forward to learn more about those communities, learn about systemic racism within the art world, ponder how to dismantle said systemic racism, and uh, promote conversation. And so that's what we're going to try and do with this episode and episodes going forward. Yes, um, we are, of course, white people. And I know that, you know, it may seem some may wonder, why aren't you interviewing more by POC people? Why aren't you, you know, bringing in more of those voices? But right now, people are so busy. One, we're also all, we're also isolated, you know, we're also, um, you know, everybody is trying to keep our society healthy and get over this pandemic, which is affecting by POC uh, communities more. And people are protesting, people are putting a lot of energy and creativity into the social movements that are going on all across the country right now. So we didn't want to ask anybody else to take on labor, to to ask for them to take their time um, to, you know, promote or be on or, you know, benefit our podcast. So we wanted to, you know, focus on doing readings. Um, there's a lot of great literature going around and suggestions going around. Um, we're kind of working from uh, the list that Hyperallergic put out, which I will include in the show notes, of course. And we're going to be educating ourselves and, uh, you know, really looking at anti-racist practices and, you know, systemic and institutional uh, racist histories. And then we're going to be, you know, analyzing them, talking about them from an art world perspective, you know, just to keep it close to our uh, mission as an arts podcast. So with that in mind, we kind of split up topics between the two of us. Uh, and Jace is going to tell us about the very first topic because this was her topic. There are many lists going around of good educational uh, reading for uh, white people or, you know, just anybody that supports the, you know, anti-racist social movements going on right now. And so I'm hoping to work through the An Essential Reading List for Black Liberation brought to you by the Schomburg Center that was posted on Hyperallergic. And one of those, uh, one of those publications is a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And just for a hot tip for everybody, is that it is now available for free uh, on your mobile personal device, what have you, through the Hennepin County Library. So if you have a Hennepin County Library card, uh, you can read this book 
from your own personal device, which is what I've been doing. So, you know, nice free resources, but still, you know, are supporting your local library and educate yourself. So should we get into it? We're, we're about to do some, uh, some introductory anti-racist reading. And so I'm going to be mixing in some quotes um, of passages from the book. And then I also have some uh, statistics to talk about how it relates to the art world. Ooh, yes, yeah, I'm so excited. Very ooh. Very so, ill. yes. So the book uh, begins with definitions in chapter one, and the first definition is racist: one who is supporting a racist policy through their actions or inaction or expressing a racist idea. Anti-racist: one who is supporting an anti-racist policy through their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea, and. The author, Mr. Kendi, poses or, you know, asserts that there is no not racist and how people say, well, I'm not racist or that is not racist, um, that there is only racist and then the opposite of it is anti-racist and that not racist is inherently racist because it doesn't mean anti-racist. Wow, I had never thought of it that way before. Already, <laughs> I'm, being, I'm being taught. This is excellent. Please continue. This book has been great. I'm, I'm maybe only a, a fourth or a third of the way through it, but I'm, I'm only taking select pieces from the first chapter because it is so great and so informative, and I really would, you know, recommend it. Um, so... It, you know, for free with your library card. Or I found a copy, a PDF copy for two bucks on eBay and it's an instant download. So Excellent. fun facts all around. Yeah. It's super <laughs> right. cool. So, so it's very accessible. That's really great. Indeed. Um, so I just, in that spirit, I wanted to share some examples of systematic and institutional racism uh, in order to give some examples that the author used, and then maybe that would help us think about how the art world is uh, s- set up in a systemically racist way. Okay. So, yeah, one uh, one really striking uh, instance that the author cites is, quote, do-nothing climate policy is racist policy, since the predominantly non-white global south is being victimized by climate change more than the whiter global north, even as the whiter global north is contributing more to its acceleration. Were there specific countries listed? Like, can you... Well, around the world, if we look at the northern hemisphere you know, a lot of it is dominated by North America, so United States, Canada, you know, Europe, and then Russia takes up a huge part of it, um, which is a big industrialized nation as well. And mm-hmm. then the global south, you know, you think of a lot of South America, uh, Africa, you know, Asia, and then, of course, like Oceania and a lot of island countries. Perfect. Yes. And, uh, you know, the more 
um, industrialized nations, the the a lot more of the nations that have these huge companies that are really uh, harming the environment are going to be in the northern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Okay. And also, white people are from the northern hemisphere. They are. That's true. Overwhelmingly. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Um. So that was really striking. And then another one is uh, a little more United States specific, where Candy talks about um, uh, white lives matter more to the tune of 3.5 additional years over black lives in the United States. Uh, Black infants die at twice the rate of white infants. African-Americans are 20% more likely to die of cancer than whites. Three million African-Americans and four million Latinx secured health insurance through the Affordable Care Act, dropping uninsured rates for both groups to around 11% before Barack Obama left office. But a staggering 28.5 million Americans remained uninsured, a number primed for growth after Congress repealed the individual mandate in 2017. And it is becoming even harder for people of color to vote out of office the politicians crafting these policies designed to shorten their lives, uh, which is referring to uh, voter discrimination. Can I add just like a weird, like not not necessarily a fact, but more of an observation? Sure. Uh, That because long after colonization, America became the country that uh, really prized hard work leads to success, wealth, and happiness, um, and really did not recognize that there were already deeply entrenched racist roots in place between each group of people slowly immigrating into the U.S., especially in the mid to late 19th century when the Industrial Revolution was upon us, that this idea of pulling oneself up by their bootstraps, that working hard will get you what you want, that is so deeply entrenched in American culture that when what I've noticed is that when some people who are white hear these types of statistics that, you know, black babies are dying at a higher rate than white babies, or I think it's easy to say for some folks, taking into account that that history, the philosophy of America as a country was kind of pull your stuff up by your bootstraps. It's easy for folks to look at these types of statistics and say, and be dismissive of groups of people who cannot seem to make it out of poverty, cannot seem to get um, quality healthcare or education, that, that there's this existing bias and belief that they have actually done something wrong and therefore deserve those bad outcomes. And part of understanding systemic racism is understanding that there are forces that have come from historical oppression of the same groups of people for generations that actually keep those groups of people from rising to to the level of having a solid educational experience and uh, quality healthcare, for example. And so I just wanted to point out that 
That's what we mean when we talk about systemic racism. It's this deeply, deeply entrenched, often with historical roots, racism, racist policies that keep a certain group of people below another group of people. Yeah, there was a there was a quote. Um, I wish I had it on me now. That it was something. Um, I'll paraphrase it. It was something like, "You can't chain a people and you know wound and cripple their bodies and malnourish them and you know take away their education, sense of direction, and then." unchain them and then put them at the starting line of a marathon with everybody else and expect them to succeed. That visualization is, is very clear. I I really, I appreciate that type of metaphor when you're talking about the, the differences in accessibility to healthcare, education, wealth, et cetera, in, in American society between the races. Right, because you can literally picture a bunch of Olympic athletes who have trained their whole life, you know, and trained their whole life to run this marathon. And, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, relates to they were born into a stable family where they could see what, you know, success and comfort looks like. And then they were educated in how to get success and comfort and then, you know, had the, you know, ability and, you know, just kind of resources, know-how, what have you to get into college or, you know, where to apply for job, how to get a job, et cetera. So, you know, it's, you can, you know, kind of think of it as like, you know, someone who's been chained up their whole life, put out a starting line uh, versus, you know, someone who has been training to be an Olympic athlete mm-hmm. their entire life at that same starting line. I want to point out also the poignancy of that particular metaphor with chains relating to uh, slavery in America, which was a huge industry and was a wealth driver for many of the wealthiest families in America that then generations later went on to create humanities institutions like art museums and natural history museums. Um, The perception of history is also presented by the victors, not not just written history. Absolutely. And unfortunately, you make a very good point, but it is important to keep this all in mind. Okay, so I I got figures and statistics for the, uh, and these, you know, as kind of vignettes talking about commercial galleries, museums, the art market, and biennials. So let's strap in and, you know, talk about oppression in many corners of our world. All right. So, uh, in an article from Art News from 2017, it reported that 80% of artists in New York City's top galleries were, you guessed it, white. Oh, what? 80%. And these are going to be the top galleries, you know, so that's going to be like Hauser and Worth, David Zwerner, da-da-da. Um, and 
it took into account 45 of those top galleries, and which was about 1,300 artists, 80% white. And then uh, 20% of those are Yale MFA grads, which... What? That's just weird. It, <laughs> it's not... It's, no, it's not weird. It is like if you are a Yale MFA or it's just kind of like if you can afford or have the situation to get into a Yale MFA program, it's like sliding into a commercially successful artist no role. Well, so wait. Totally. So what about like now you have to go even further down. What about Yale's uh, statistics? Oh. <laughs> oh, I did that. Are you I'm ready? I'm so ready. I, uh. I went that extra step. Um, Right. So I couldn't find reports on the MFA program specifically, but I did get an overview of the graduate department in their arts and sciences, So, which which is the school which the MFA program is in. And uh, in the Yale Grad School of Art and Science, 60% of students are white and 16% are black. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> and I will qualify that um, this statistic does not include uh, people who identify as two or more races. I see. Okay. I will. Uh, I will have all of these linkity links on the show notes if you want to take take a look at that. Um, all right. And so now we're stepping into the museum world. An article from Artnet News in 2019 estimated that 85% of artists represented in art, in art museums are Holy white. crap. <laughs> that's like, that's slightly more than what I would have anticipated, especially when taking um, statistics from such a wide swath of art museums. <laughs> Um, and in the United States, the population at large is about 61% white. So if the population is 61% white, the, but the art museum representation is 85% white. And just to add a, a little further statistic, um, that if you narrow the artist list to only uh, artists who are from the United States and not just international artists represented by New York galleries, the percent of white people goes up to 88%. So, oh my God. So it adds, wait, so the 85% of artists represented in art museums that are white includes international artists. The perc- includes international. The percent of artists represented that are white and from the United States is 88%? Yes. So, like, if you take out international artists in art museums, it's, own, like, the statistic goes up to 88% white. Okay. My goodness. Right. Yes. Very, very mind-blowing. Much angry. Mm-hmm. Blah. Okay, and now on to the art market. An article by Artnet News in 2017 says that there are 25 artists who account for 50% of art market sales. So of all the sales in the art market, there are 25 artists who take up half of the sales. 
Uh, I will say number one is Jean-Michel Basquiat. Jean-Michel Basquiat, who is a who was a Black American artist uh, who died quite young in the in the eighties or so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Forever Twenty Seven Club. Yeah, yeah. But he was he was really prolific and and passed away when he was very young. Um, but his work apparently is is still really widely sought. Absolutely. And it's amazing, as it should be widely sought. Yeah, it but is. But putting Basquiat aside, 21 of those 25 artists are white. <laughs> wow. There is only one woman, and she is in place number 25, and that's Agnes Martin, who is a Canadian female artist. Mm-hmm. And there is only one openly queer person, Andy Warhol, which is, uh, he's like second or top three, top yeah, five. This is like the that. guy with the, he did the soup cans, Marilyn Monroe, multiples. His, his, his imagery is, is at least really, really uh, ubiquitous within American culture, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Expanding on that, a 2018 Art Net News article talked about how black artists are undervalued in the art market and that the total combined auction value of work by African-American artists is $460.8 million, which sounds great, but that is just 0.26% of the global auction market. It's not even a full percent. No, that is like a fourth of a percent. Wow, that's minuscule. And up until fairly recently in history, like from the 90s on, there were only four artists, four black artists whose work would sell for more than $100,000, which again, sounds great. But the thing is, <laughs> Picasso's and whatever, I don't know, like Richter's and your Hockney's and whatever are going to go for millions. Yeah, you're like typical white guys. Their typical white guys would get millions in their lifetimes, mm-hmm. like without being dead. Without being dead. That's right. Yeah, I think that's an important thing to note. My last example here, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about biennials. And as we know, the Venice Biennale is the granddaddy of the Biennales. And I looked at an article from Artsy in 2017 talking about the you know Venice Biennale's 2017 demographics. 67% of the artists were white, 4% were black. Wow. And let me say, this is an international, like the Venice Biennale is a huge international exhibition. So much money and research goes into the Venice Biennale. Tons of countries have their own pavilions, and 4% are black, and that's just not that's not African-Americans. That's globally 4% of the artists in this global Biennale were black, which also translates to five artists. Five oh artists in like the, the oldest, longest running biennial in the world. And only one of them was a woman. The, I should explain too, really, that biennials are, we, we say the Venice Biennale because Italian. These types of gatherings of artists, especially the Venice Biennale, can dictate how 
trends in the art market and exhibitions are presented for the next two years. I mean, they're, they are hugely important for the art market as a whole worldwide and also for which contemporary artists will will be emerging that year, which ones will get the spotlight and be collected by museums. And so the fact that only 4% at the Venice Biennale, the greatest, most expensive, most revered biennial in the art world. Highly attended, yeah. Are black. That's insane. Like, that's absolutely insane. That number feeds into all of the other statistics that we have just laid out for you. Absolutely. It's kind of like the runway, the fashion week. Oh, yeah, that's a good comparison. The art world. Yeah, it is a fashion week you know, the, the Yeah, like the designers come out and show their lines and then representative from, you know, like all these big, you know, buyers, you know, kind of are like, oh, yes, I want to renew my contract with this brand that's been around for 20 years. Oh, look at this cool new designer. Let's sign them and get a relationship while they're young because I think, you know, their clothes are going to be prolific mm-hmm. and this, you know, partnership is going to pay off, da-da-da. So it's, you know, kind of functions in that way a little bit. Yeah. I mean, this is this is just huge. So if you think back we almost, we kind of did this backwards, really. We went from looking at it really specifically and locally to pulling back and pulling back and pulling back for a more broad look at the arts worldwide. And so I think this is a really good discussion to see how this system is set up to highlight white artists over black artists in general. Right. And how they're all interconnected. Mm-hmm. So thinking about these systemic and institutional, you know, racist policies and trends in the art world, there there is a lot of selection. There's a lot of taste making. There's a lot of selective qualities about the art world. You know, maybe, you know, if we're thinking about the fashion designer analogy where, you know, there's the buyers who are approaching the designers or in terms of like maybe music, you know, producers and record labels listen to bands and singers, etc. and sign them and then, you know, that boosts them museums have boards and committees who are talking about acquisitions, who decide on the acquisitions, and the curators help inform acquisitions, things that are going to be purchased and then put in a museum, and they can get shown throughout history, right? So museums write a lot of history and keep artists' work and names alive. Galleries find and select artists and, you know, create these relationships, a lot like that fashion designer analogy. They create relationships, lasting relationships. You know, someone could be with a gallery for decades, like their whole career maybe. That's not, you don't get assigned an artist. Galleries choose them. And same with auction houses. They take on work. They like accept the job of being the mediaries between the owner and the public, the artist and the public, a museum who's deaccessioning and the public. 
people don't just like drop off art and say, okay, sell this, you know, it's, (laughs) I think, I think that might be how, that's how some people think it goes, but I should, we should clarify too, like acquisition is the, the process that an institution uses to get a piece of art into their collection for public viewing or for private viewing, I suppose, depending on the institution. Deaccessioning is the process by which an institution gets rid of a work of art from their collection. And all of this is interconnected. The The biennials or the biennale in particular kind of sets the tone for what's going to be new and cool and who's coming on the scene and who's to watch in the art world. And the art market literally and figuratively also values these works. And, and if, if a work sells for more, I mean, that artist is really going to be sought after. And, and then those works, you know, make them make their way into institutions, public institutions, like encyclopedic museums. So in the U.S., that would be, you know, the Minneapolis Institute of Art, the, the Philadelphia Art Museum, the Chicago Museum of Art. I mean, just to name a few. And then that disseminates down to the public you fine folks that we're talking to right now. It's all connected. And if the system doesn't value Black artists, neither do we. That was a good summation. And also, thank you for catching me on my use of art world buzzwords <laughs> without oh, explaining them. That was, that was on the recommendation of as someone that I know who listens to this podcast regularly, who is not in the art world and, and recommended that we maybe define things a little bit better. <laughs> so if you catch me on it, I, I encourage you to call me out on it as well. Cause sometimes you and I just get on a roll and, you know, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we, obviously we want to make this accessible, you know, entertaining and, you know, thought provoking for people who are in the art world, but also approachable for people who aren't. Sarah illustrated that very well. And the art world, things just aren't assigned. You know, we, we all need to make conscious choices. And I wanted to close out by reading a paragraph from the book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, that helps support this point and, you know, talk about how we can, you know, rectify the situation to make sure, you know, that everybody has been training for an equal amount of time for their Olympic marathon when they step up to the starting line, you know, to reference an earlier uh, metaphor. Mm -hmm. Racial discrimination is defined as treating, considering, or making a distinction in favor or against an individual based on that person's race. Racial discrimination is not inherently racist. The defining question is whether the discrimination is creating equity or inequity. If discrimination is creating equity, then it is anti-racist. If discrimination is creating inequity, then it is racist. Someone reproducing inequity through permanently assisting an overrepresented racial group into wealth and power is entirely different than someone challenging that inequity by temporarily assisting an underrepresented racial group into relative wealth and power until equity is reached. So in this case, that would look like more biennials being conscious of an intentional 
of who they're choosing to represent. I think like aim for aim for a hundred, because that certainly seems to have been the case historically for these biennials, for these gatherings. The undervaluing price-wise of black artists is not the only type of undervaluing that has occurred. That is an entirely different episode. I will just say simply that there is a there is a mm, curatorial critical undervaluing of black artists that has existed within the art world for a very long time. And so white artists gonna are gonna make it in there anyway. That's just how the system is set up. But I don't think that we should aim low. I think we should just aim high because clearly aiming for 50% or even, you know, 60% has not been enough. It hasn't been enough. And and the slow incremental changes that some institutions have have made or have said they're going to make hasn't been enough. So I'm rather definitive in that stance personally that if there need if there's going to be true change that we need to aim for 100%. That's not going to happen, but we need to aim for that. Yeah, and you know there's this, you know, buzzword of, you know, using positive discrimination and you know he does note that it's temporarily favoring this other party in order to raise equity. Galleries seeking out a more diverse representation of artists in order to have an equal representation of racists within the the artists they represent. And, you know, in the case of the, uh, you know, this, the top New York City galleries, and so many of them are coming from Yale, which is a predominantly white school, uh, you know, start looking at other places, start, you know, looking at other open studios from historically black colleges or other, you know, institutions that have a more diverse makeup of students. And then, of course, that also leads into representation in the art market and the, um, you know, propelling wealth in people of color uh, in the art market. And then, of course, that's going to also, you know, lead to people getting shows and then people getting acquired by museums. Um, And then not only is it boosting their career, uh, you know, as they're starting out, but also it perpetuates a career and keeps someone relevant and keeps them employed as an artist and working for their whole life. And also in the case of museums, you know, lets their art live on past their time and, you know, includes their voice in the conversation of history in our museums as well. So this episode was obviously full of a ton of really good information, and I am so into this conversation that we're having. Um, we we love being able to, both Jason and I love being able to express our ideas um, about what we've experienced and what we know about the art world to describe uh, the systemic racism that, that exists within it. Um, and we're so glad that we are not beholden to a specific, um, you know, underwriter or company that dictates what we can and cannot say. Yay us! Um, but we do ask if if you can, please donate to our Patreon. We have a link on our website, which is sodapodcast.blog. I think it's sodapodcast.blog. Yes, and actually, we do have a new patron. I don't know if you saw, but it's... I emailed her. Oh, great! Yes, it's somebody I know. Oh, really? 
Yeah. Oh, she's so awesome. Yeah, I, I, I messaged her from Patreon. And I was like, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Oh, my God. You're so great. Thank you. Yeah, she's super sweet. She's the woman who, she's from South Dakota, and Sati and I met her in Tokyo. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and she, she has since moved back to Minneapolis. Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you to her. That's really, really lovely. Um, the, that She's donating, like, the five bucks a month. Um, even even $2 a month helps. Like, it does not have to be a specific amount. And um, and that, ty- that type of uh, funding just helps us pay for um, producing the podcast. So, you know, the cost of keeping a website, um, buying recording equipment, that sort of thing. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and I just, before we got to that, I wanted to also just... And another disclaimer, I know that I said this at the beginning, but um, we are well aware uh, of our privilege and we're just working to be more aware of it, more aware of the disadvantage of others. And, you know, we're, we're doing the podcast this way, again, because we wanted to be able to educate ourselves, still stay true to, you know, making these episodes uh you know, oriented towards the art world and then do the, you know, critical anti-racist reading and education and, you know, staying informed, uh, that, that should be done. Mm -hmm. So we are working and, and we are learning. And I know that, um, you know, we're not perfect and we've got a, a, a long way to go. Uh, but, this is this is our starting point, and thank you all for for joining us on this journey. If you have some feedback for us, questions, comments, concerns about anything in this podcast, episode, tell them to Sarah them because to- I am fragile. <laughs> well, I mean, actually, yeah, like, yeah. So um, you can. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Like, find me. Tell it to my tell face. Tell it to Jason's face. Drive to California to tell it to her face. Yeah. Um, you right. can you can DM us on on Instagram. We're at Soda Podcast. Uh, you can also email us at Soda Podcast, S O T A Podcast at gmail.com. Both Jason and I monitor those uh, those platforms. So we'd really really love to hear from you, um, even if it's criticism. It's it's all helpful. Um, so yeah, thank you thank you so much for listening. Please share this with your friends. If you liked this episode, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. Really, really helps get other people um, aware of the podcast and will help us grow um, together. So that would be really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening, everybody.